Hello, welcome to Threadings. This is the newsletter and the podcast, the personal journal of mine, where I reflect on, am grateful for, keep and collect the things that keep and collect me. That's why it's called Threadings, you know, the stuff that's made up at my seams. Today, I have an essay for you entitled, Archival as a Love That is Longer Than Me. It's a lot. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you up front at the top, okay, there's a pretty heavy content warning for talks of suicidality, suicidal thought and intent. Um, there's no like specific place for a trigger warning for this episode because I'm talking about my teenage years, um, which were heavily impacted by the, the aforementioned trigger warnings. So if that's a really sensitive subject for you, um, if that's not something that you can get into, I would recommend tuning into a different episode. We got a lot now. Your girl is a podcaster. If you are joining me on TikTok Live, welcome. I usually do this on Saturdays, but I am traveling to see my sister be great, win an awards at her own podcast. If you want to check it out, that's called Her Music Academia. And she makes music theory alarmingly interesting. Like, I didn't know music theory could be that interesting, but I'm tuned in every week. I appreciate you all being here with me. It makes it again feel a lot more authentic than just reading to myself in a quiet room. We are back with the jazz music. Sorry to Brandon, the sound editor. Just some matter, I can't get away. I know that it's like shit. however, I do I do love the music directly in the background for all of us. Cause it, like, it really is like we're sharing a moment. I have my tea here, okay? Drinking a Japanese green tea with a lemongrass blend. And I'm drinking it cool. So that way I don't have to worry about my tea getting cold by the end of this. And I love that. So if you are here from TikTok, send a like. Thank you so much for being here with me. And if you are here listening on whatever podcast platform that you usually go to, please make sure to leave a rating. I actually really appreciate when people rate the podcast and tell me what they like and what they don't. It's so helpful to have constant feedback. But here we are for a one take reading. They're always one take. I do not go back. I do not edit these. That's uh, jazz music is proof so that you don't hear the music skipping because I enjoy having an authentic moment with you all. And there are so many places where I have to be curated. It's just nice to be here with you. So without further ado, archival as a declaration of love, the making of at Ismatudakwendalin or on loving myself enough to want to remember all of this at the end of the day. This is next in the essays of Studies Itself. Listen to the previous essay here, linked in the newsletter. And we have content warning again for mentions of suicidal thought and intent, allusion towards self-harm, nothing graphic, but it is a recurring theme of this piece. The first time I got recognized from TikTok, I was at a porn convention. P-O-R-N, porn, I did say that. I would put like a really cute photo from that day, except for I can't, they're so inappropriate. <laughs> so you're just gonna have to imagine. Me, light up bunny ears, the croppiest of times. Actually, I need you to be there with me in that moment, okay? You are at a work event, okay? Crop topped, bust out, see-through, and a bust down. First of all, bust out and bust down. See-through bedazzled mini skirt stretched over a bright pink thong standing sure on seven inch chrome pleasers and an iconic bright pink mini afro to match the thong, obviously. And you're freezing. Like, yes, it is cold uh, in the convention center and you're wearing very little clothing, but I do mean like deer in the headlights, this cannot actually be happening, freezing while knocking back your third work sanctioned shot of the evening. Maybe you're wrong. <laughs> Maybe you're just intoxicated. Maybe you totally did not just hear someone gasp and say, oh my gosh, are you on TikTok? To the back of your head. To you in, in full stripper uniform. Uh, I'm not being a very helpful narrator. You and I both know that that's all just wishful thinking. Elevate, oh, you definitely did hear that. This shit is wild. <laughs> now what? Uh, you've been on TikTok for like, a month nobody prepared you for this eventuality so soon being recognized is for famous people and you are decidedly not famous what the fuck do you think of a lie think of a lie okay stand there don't just stand there actually you need to be thinking of a lie you're draining that shot super awkwardly and now you're just like swishing the casamigos around on your tongue and now you're grimacing oh my word you are grimacing deuce anything do anything Okay, 
We're breathing out. That's good, that's good. You're swallowing the shot, great stuff, good momentum. Okay, you are turning around on some newly found liquid courage and you move to open your brilliant mouth and then this voice, this bright toothy voice in the back of your head comes all the way to the front. Everyone can see you. Everyone, everyone can already see you. How did you manage to think this whole social media thing was never really gonna affect your life? Like, you officially can never go backwards. Hi, <laughs> my name is Ismatu. Uh, I have for you an essay that used to be called On Being Surprised I Bloomed Sunflowers. And it comes to you in three acts with the following thesis. One of the best ways, one of the kindest ways, one of the most lasting ways I can love myself is through archival. It is through constant self-preservation, not just in survival self-preservation, but in a record of my life that is honest and worth keeping. And because I love myself as a stitch in a quilt, as a part of a whole, some of my archival belongs to the people that can see me, to you all here that can see me. Let's begin. Act 1, Germination. My first era of life was spent in the loving kindness of anonymity. Such is life in the mountains. One thing those will do is shelter you. Earth that is stacked towards heaven like that is hard to get to know. She is slow to like and she's longer to love. Mountains and the love that you find there press you in ways that renegotiate time. They impress upon you timelessness. I appreciate moving slowly. I appreciate moving a lot slower when it comes to being raised in the mountains. And the mountains that I was raised in, the Colorado Rockies, were kind in their reminders. They remind you that you need to get to know your neighbors because you will need your neighbors to survive the snow. They remind you that you are teeny and that you always will be and that clean, good air is a blessing. Most of all, they remind me that I am lucky to be so small and held so gingerly by mighty mama earth. We ourselves are only her fingertips and her eyelashes, they chorus at me. How big she is, mama earth, and how gentle all the same for choosing to hold your hand every day. Mountains also remind you of how little you will ever know and it makes you breathe a sigh of relief. This world that we live in exudes stress in its constant quest to become larger than life, to know everything. I was always content as a finite little being because of the mountains that made me. For me, life was about as long and thick as a tree and I wasn't dealt an easy life necessarily, but it had a character of ease, if that makes sense. There's only so much you allow yourself to be rushed when you can hear the trees and what they say to you. They talk low and slow. It was a childhood where I felt the rise and the fall of every day. I never, not what, never woke up and thought, my goodness, I can't wait to be an adult. Colorado was my first love, which I first defined without realizing as how much I had been given or how much I was willing to give without asking. Colorado was the thing that made me define love as what am I willing to give and what have I been given without anyone even asking me. I had a family with love in it, I had friends. My childhood body did not feel and name love until I watched the winter sky bruise periwinkle with planets and stars still glittering, hanging over the peaks like a lover who was loath to leave. Until the sun set in the west at 10 p.m. while I had my first honeysuckle. The breeze is sweet and I say, oh, this is love. This is what love is. I learned to journal in the cradle of the trees, actually. All of my important conversations with myself and with God creator happened at least 20 feet off the ground as a security measure. The trees kept all my secrets and I kept theirs. It was this one day in a garden when I was 13 that they revealed to me that I had their roots inside of my chest cavity. A tree said to me, we're, we're on the inside of you too. 
You don't always have to come to us out here. You can come to us on the inside. We'll be here for you. We love you that way. That paper could keep me and my secrets just like they do. That I could belong to myself just as much as I belong to everybody else. And even more than that, that I was someone worth belonging to in the first place. That it is okay for me to save the best parts of me for myself because I am worth belonging to in the first place. I had my own self dangling from the end of my pen and I tasted love for the second time. I didn't know that I'd been hiding from myself until I called my own name and heard an answer within me, 13 and dreaming of what selfhood feels like when the only person that owns me is me, 13 and dreaming of autonomy, 13 and looking at raspberries bend their whole plant because they've grown up to be thick and ripe and on display, 13 and thinking of what it could be like to be all ripe and ready like that. I named my notebook Thessalina and I began to germinate. There's a link to an essay here called The Garden Space, An Introduction, in which I talk more about the first day I picked up a pen. It's a great read. This is the blessing of anonymity. No one talks to a little black girl up a tree. Nobody's talking to you. No one asks you any probing questions. No one is interested in the minutia of your day. Not even your parents. Most days, no one even sees you. Not many people think to look up above them when they walk outside. By the time I picked up a pen and I found myself, I had the freedom of zero follow-up questions and a 10 p.m. curfew because that is when the sun set in a Colorado summer. Let me tell you how much privacy that was. Blessed and sweet amounts of privacy. No one in my family ever attempted to read what I wrote down. I truly don't even think my parents thought about it. Invaluably, I was alone with myself, feeling through my own desire for my body and my time and my sovereignty. I don't know that I've ever wanted anything worse than I wanted myself in entirety. Raspberries tasted just like me. I opened up pages and I gobbled myself down. Act two, stolen blooms. My love affair with myself began cataclysmic and I knew it even then. We were never gonna make it out of that. For one, I was dying. I told you, it was a life of ease of character, not ease of circumstances. My circumstances were not easy to survive. There were a lot of ways in which I could have met an early death. My circumstances were point blank going to kill me or I was going to put myself out of my own misery. And the reasons why are for an entirely different essay, but for the purposes of this one, I need you to understand how close death was at any given point in time. Death breathed and heaved over me like July storm clouds, just thick and delicious and promising to come cool and sweet and all at once. Death is very sweet. Dying young seemed like a neutral fact of life, like falling asleep on Christmas Eve, even while you try and fight it. Death was a matter of when, not if. I was also wrong to think in terms of ownership. And I knew that then too, I just, I just didn't know what else to do. A relationship with myself that could last, like truly, really last me, would only ever be one with reciprocity, one with true agency, one where I chose myself, where I get to know myself slowly and I choose myself, where my body chooses me back and feels regulated, where my mind oversees that process and we move together in tandem like that. A daily choice, hesitantly made, long to love and slow to like, just like the mountains that built me. I knew I was rushing into things with someone I had quite literally just met, but honestly, like, I saw myself and I tasted myself and I could, I, I could be myself in my own company and it was very much love at first sight. Like, I don't know, you be damned. I was so ready for me. It was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot being that in love, that young, 
and I was like rushing into something with someone I I didn't know that well because I didn't know myself that well I couldn't know myself that well but when you're young like that and I was and I still am the world has a way of convincing you that everything you will ever be is right in front of your eyes the world has this way of convincing you that everything you will ever be is right there and you can touch it so you should just take it and grab it and not let go of it right now plus there was that whole matter of i'm pretty sure i'm not going to live to see 16. so like i generally felt like i was moving on borrowed time i might as well do it hot and fast right like in the meeting and the keeping of myself i julia was my own romeo i will tell you this because i'm endeavoring to be honest with you all i did not fucking care. I know I was dying. I didn't care. I know I was being selfish and I did not care. I knew that I was bottling myself up with all this hot ash and, and rough edges and I did not give one single solitary fuck. Not even a partial fuck. I did not care. And I tried. I tried to want better for myself. It's not like I wanted to leave someone the trauma of finding me like still and, and cooled and finally at peace. At least that's the way that I see death, but I didn't want, it's not that I wanted it. I didn't want this. Nobody wishes to be <laughs> suicidal. I just, it felt so good to luxuriate and decay in places where nobody could see me but me. I reached inside myself and I found the earth and I said, mine mine and I began to bury me then and there I began to bury myself this disposition intoxicated me the thought that I could account for myself in full the thought that I was completely knowable that I could own me it was just it was impossible I knew but it was also too good to ignore I couldn't let go I wanted to not spill a drop like i wanted to be mine and not let anybody else have not one drop not spill or share the idea of being mine and mine alone it's good when you're young it felt a lot like allegedly doing drugs with no intention of coming down like when you are doing drugs and you intend to be up there for a while a good long while when you assume that you'll be dead before you're sober it feels like that. Not that I'm advocating for that. I'm just, I'm, I'm just being honest. And then there it is, the predictable and then. Words began to find their way out of me, capital W. It happened in public, which is the most embarrassing part. Somebody fucked up and handed me a mic. I could tell you who in fact, it was my youth pastor, lame. I was a child. I was just a child. When that happened, I was 14, so I could not really see that I was silly for thinking that I could have my own secrets, right? I hadn't yet understood that other people saw things that I hadn't developed the eyes for. And I also have one of the loudest dispositions that I have ever met on another human being. Like, you can tell exactly what I'm thinking. I am so loud, just like whoever's in the kitchen right now. <laughs> You, my thoughts flash across my face with the strength and the clarity of a gospel choir soprano. It is truly so unserious of me to think that I could keep my own secrets that young. Like, imagine having a chest full of trees and deluding yourself into thinking that no one can see the branches but you. Silly, just silly. I could not own my own soils any more than I could own the earth. And me and the mountains are the same thing. Slow to like, long to love, visible for miles and miles around. It's just that at that time, the only example of love that I had was one rooted in possession and ownership. I didn't know how to love without being possessive. I didn't know how to love without thinking about owning the thing that I was loving without having it forever. I certainly did not know how to exist in any sort of real and true community with myself. I didn't even know that was possible. And then even in speaking and in, in learning to speak in public, and learning to navigate a mic and a stage and a spotlight, it wasn't really for me. It was for sharing my God-given talents with the world, read 
it was for white adults who applauded me while I died in front of them. And I was so, so eager to please. Growing up in the white evangelical Christian church made me such a glutton for pain. White folks with money really do love to watch a black girl bleed, and that's true. Agony on display in my essays and in my poetry, and they applaud. I am dying in front of you. I would rumble into the mic, and that declaration would always be followed up with a bigger mic, a larger stage, and more money. This is the first time that you hear that honest, toothy voice bright in the back of your mind, back to front. Hey, hey, everyone can see you. Are you sure that you want to be seen like this? Are you certain? I think after all that, after a, a private that was very much thrust into the public, I became a recluse. I was too young. I was too young to love the stage. Love requires clarity and consent. And I was too young to even know how to consent to being in the public eye. I didn't have the wherewithal to make that choice. When you start existing in that kind of emotional nudity, that little. And when you do so for survival, you don't really think about, you don't even have time to think about your relationship to performance. I didn't love the stage. I didn't like the stage. It was just a part of my week. The loose warmth of something familiar and not altogether unpleasant. As neutral and as vaguely sweet as a LaCroix. As death itself. I am dying. I wrote and I was handed a scholarship. We are dying. Dying. I penned and was handed research money. More stages, more money, bigger mics, nothing to ever really fix the problem. Sometime in college, when I lost my family to poverty and to stress and to Ebola, while Ebola was still a case study in my global health courses, this stitch of time where I had to wade between this life and this death and trying to find the cadence of every day. This was the time I realized that I was owned. I saw how brilliant pain is and why it's so lucrative. How ritualistic all of this was. How much my blood looks like diamonds. How much they the audience, the white audience, waiting with bated breath, is willing to pay for my blood. Diamonds. I want it in diamonds, since I am so sacred to the ritual of this world order. These people are going to pay for my blood in diamonds one day. Once I realized the precarity of my place, that the love of the institution was still just ownership by other names, like publication, once I realized I was still very much on the plantation, I came to a screeching halt. I was a senior in college and I blamed it on burnout and it was so much more than exhaustion. I was lying, I was lying. It was repulsion, if I'm honest. It was repulsion at coming to understand that I had sold my mind, that I had sold my fertile earth to the academy without even realizing that that's what I had done. That this life of mine was built on turning my thoughts into something tangible and supple. Something that bleeds so I could tack it with words. Like a butterfly pinned shiny on a cork board. Like pieces of flesh stitched together with someone's humanity. Immortalized on the page. Me constantly pulling forth Frankenstein from my biggest wounds. The university that paid for my health insurance and new laptops in exchange for my fertile earth. These were not the pages of the trees that once held regard for me. This was love in ownership. This was love in ownership again. And that's never really truly love, is it?
Is it? There is no freedom in the academy. I had pimped out my mind to a new age plantation and they wanted me to pretend like I liked it. That was the worst part. It wasn't just that you did it. It's that you wanted me to pretend like it was an honor. Graduate school began to knock and I was celebrated. I received the prize for all of my scholastic excellence, which was more hard work. I shut my mind off. She had seen enough. We, we had seen enough. Nothing in my purse but lip gloss, a MacBook, and a change of hell. What was coming was not safe for us. The thing that, were, that was coming next wasn't safe. And I didn't know how to keep our secrets anymore. I didn't even trust myself. So I took my pen. I kissed her gingerly. I put her in the pocket between one rib and another. I graduated college. I did not publish my thesis. I began my master's program and I laid us all to rest with a two-line refrain. I have misplaced my seams. My grief spills everywhere. Act three, what I owe to the sun. I don't have much to say in public about the next following years, which is my time as a dancer, uh, except for that I appreciated it for its honesty. There was no delusion or pretense to the job. Your body is on display and you are paid accordingly. Literally just like academia, just like academia, except for way better paid and far more agency over your day. Like, let's be so for real. <laughs> the strip club is a place where you can actually be honest with yourself and in fact, your job depends on you being honest with yourself because there are some bits of you that you cannot take into work. There are some bits of you that you absolutely must leave at the door. There is no money at the club waiting for you if you are not capable of a precise, thorough, honest self-inventory. I shed what I needed to when I take off my sweats, my brain gets put in a jar, the jar goes in my locker, and I am out the door. This process was very rinse and repeat with me. Be beauty rituals, really true, good beauty rituals, require a brutal self-appraisal daily, as a daily practice of sanctification. I never really surprise myself with the parts of me that make it out of the locker room. I've been performing my whole life. So... We flash forward in a montage, a handful of years just gone in 30 seconds of black lights and white lingerie and morning after alcohol because I did indeed become someone that had champagne for breakfast. It's only cute when it's a mimosa, right? And not because you're trying to survive your day job or your night job. This is why I don't really talk much about the club. It's for real one part spite towards a very nosy internet. <laughs> and three parts because I would run out of things to say in like five minutes. It's more or less uneventful. Sure, like every now and again something happens, but more often than not, it's just Tuesday. Every day is a Tuesday. My life tumbled forward. I renegotiate myself at the start of every day on what I am and what I would like to keep and how I am going to put myself to bed that night. It's a montage of black lights white lingerie and trouble sleeping except except here is our final and then and then after i'd been in the ring for a while long enough to know what i was doing and long enough to start making the wrong decisions i started swinging myself around on the pole just to try it just to see a little spice you know what i'm saying i was too fucked up at the moment to say no maybe it isn't a stellar idea to try a flip for the first time with an audience and a stomach full of cucumbers and hummus and champagne. Or maybe I made this decision because it was a blood moon and because I was sick with envy that other girls were better dancers than me because I don't like it when bitches are better than me. Maybe it was because I still had this unrealized dream of dancing on the world stage where everyone could see me. I am not pristine enough for the world stage and I am too much of a perfectionist to embarrass myself like that, but this here this little place of constant anonymity 
This is very much not an audience of everyone. And I was so fucked up, like I was so intoxicated. And I flipped myself over and I started flying. I don't actually think I've hit the ground yet. The first night I ever pole danced, as in really fucking did that shit, pole danced. I pulled an inversion I've only ever seen me do in my dreams. Upon going to pole classes, apparently it's like a level three. I don't really know what the levels are, but I was, as I said, fucked up and in new heels because mine broke on me during my last stage set and I wasn't about to go home. I had my prettiest lingerie on, bust down, lashes. I remember hearing my first stage song ever play over me going, diamonds on my neck, that diamonds on my grill. And I remembered what these people owe me diamonds for my blood and I remember thinking to the chorus that lives in my head this stage is gonna be soaked by the time I'm done and my body found its way into the air spinning upside down arms in front of me grabbing my back leg hanging like a ballerina in a snow globe and money rained down here is that bright and toothy voice who I now call Auntie D it is a shame that everyone can't see you do this. You are a star. You love the stage. You look so good on the stage. Remember when you used to be on stage? Oh, I do love the stage. I think I missed the stage. This was also a stage in life where I was passively dying. As much as the club low-key saved my life, I was only ever so attached to being here. Here enough to function and to drink and not much past that. Remember that we are in a season of life where we are gone way past the mountains years ago, fooling folks into thinking I'm a true blue city bitch hiding my brilliance from graduate school so that the university does not take me from myself again, hiding my real identities and signifiers at work, hiding my work from my family, somehow never hiding from myself because I am living a life that depends on me always being honest with myself and I'm not doing a very good job at being honest with myself and so I am dying. A secret radiated off me, I was dying. Yet again, I felt that familiar, cool, delicious storm cloud swirling above me and thought, not at all startled, oh, those clouds are so low that I can't see my hands in front of me. I remember the last time I couldn't see past my current age, I was 15, and that was the year that I tried to kill myself and failed. I was there at 23, watching me drink bottle after bottle of work-sponsored top-shelf liquor and thinking somewhere distant, I am dying. Maybe, maybe you should save yourself. Followed up with a revision when that felt like way too grand a task. Maybe I should save bits of myself somewhere, just in case, just in case I survive all of this like I keep doing somehow. I will want to know what happened to me. I want to find out what happened to me. So I did two things. I kept one raggedy notebook over three years, which is a record low, but it is better than nothing. And I picked up TikTok, at least in part, to have a means of documentation in spite of my hiding. It's really good to be here on TikTok Live, too. Hello. Maybe that's just me making, like, a story out of things. You know, looking back and writing together bullet points that don't actually go together. But in all honesty, I don't really believe in a whole lot of coincidences. And never in my life have I really felt like I had things to say to the public. I have been very okay with keeping to myself and even that first round of mic in hand, people watching me, was not because I felt like I had things to say. It was because I had been called to speak and I answered the call. So all of a sudden, here while I am dying, I found it within me to address the general masses. I don't know. It feels like 
a particular time to come out of that kind of hibernation. We also have one last bit of crucial honesty before we make our way back to the plot. Writing and keeping record of myself and my circumstances was crucial to my survival as a teenager. I'm gonna talk openly about this because I think a decent amount of teenagers watch me and follow me. And because I am a mental health professional, so I feel like I owe you all honesty about suicide and suicidality because I don't think we get enough of that. And because most of the content that I make is me making things that I would have wanted to see when I was 15 and 16 and hoping desperately that maybe I was wrong and maybe I would live till adulthood even though I didn't feel that way. I would have really appreciated finding adults that were willing to be honest about what they did and did not know and what they have and have not survived. And I would have really appreciated seeing an adult like me open up after struggling with what I struggled with. So there was a time in my life um, after suicide attempts, which were on and off from 15 to 23, after suicidality and stuff like that, there was a time in my life where I did not have the will to live. I mean, I didn't, I didn't get the will to live until very recently. I didn't get the will to live until like well into year 24. What those bitches say about, oh, your brain doesn't really fully click into gear and develop until 25, those hoes are right. And I'm so serious. Like if you are 23 and under, even if you just turned 24 and under, just, just give it a second. Give it a second. Give it a second. Those, when those front gears really start grinding, it really it does something. I don't know what's in that juice, but your brain starts making some juice. Give it a second. But to say, right, I was 15. I decided I didn't want to be here anymore. Failed miserably. And sort of um, inexplicably, <laughs> I just was, it just was not my time to go yet, point blank. I was being kept for something, collected for something. And I had some very large spiritual revelations at that point in time. Um, surrounding choice and destiny because the honestly what i what i did was should have worked it was supposed to work and it didn't and the only conclusions i had were it's just not time for me to leave yet death has not accepted me even though death has made it very clear that he wants me he's not coming to get me so i have to stay here what do i do i i had some very clear revelations about what i do and do not have a choice in in this world and what destiny orders of me and how much i can accept or reject it as someone who is teeny who is just a human being being held up by big grand mama earth right just because i no longer wanted to actively die or i never i didn't see that as a feasible option does not mean i magically got the will to live and be honest with you because everyone said, oh, all you have to do is survive this. Okay, well, I survived it. And then I still do not want to be here. I think we should be more honest about that. I didn't have the will to live. I just lacked the will to die. I did not actually have the will to live. I just lacked the will to die. Death is a commitment. Death is a commitment in the way that the shuffle of everyday life is not. You really gotta want it. And just because I did not actively want to be uh, dead anymore does not mean that I magically wanted to stay. And I wish you all had been more honest about that part. Because I was sitting here like, I thought something was supposed to click. Something was supposed to be different. That's not really what happened. I had these spiritual revelations that anchored me to this world and my understandings had grown. I was meant to be here still. I just still had no idea why. It was a day to day that I characterized like the Chicago winter impressing itself on the skyline. Every day is gray. Every day was gray. It was just that some days were lower than others. Some days the fog really came down and kissed your feet, but every day was gray. We went on like that in this everyday gray haze until my brain started to click into place uh, at almost 24. And that was two things, right? It was age and it was habits. It was a habit of getting used to the fact that I was going to do this life, whether I liked it or loved it or not. And me getting older. This sounds corny, but I'm so serious. And you can trust me to be honest. So I am telling you, your life really does get better when your brain is done growing. Mine's not even done growing yet. Please hang in there. 
Anyways, I am here, breaths from my next stage of life, holla at 25. I am here on the precipice of all these things that I don't know about yet. A couple years into the club, a couple years into graduate school, having made a full revolution, okay, as in all the way back to start, we're zooming back in. Thank me, this is almost a year ago, okay? 23 turning 24, I have no idea what's coming from me. We're there. 10 year anniversary of me answering a notebook's call and deeming myself somebody worth writing down. I make a TikTok, just one, just one video because I was attempting to pretend it wasn't that deep. Uh, and then I immediately went viral. <laughs> this is our last end then, forget what I said earlier, my bad, this one, this is our last end then. You make your cute little speaking video and then the first TikTok you ever make goes viral. Look at you foolish. Foolish. You called the stage and she came running. What exactly did you expect? What did you think would happen? You look good on stage and that's the truth. You are supposed to be up there. We're at the end of the montage. You're easing yourself into the spotlight. You're easing yourself out of the club, just barely. You're trying to pretend like it's super normal to hit a six figure follower count in six weeks. Life is very fractured, still. That's okay. It gets glued together bit by bit, not all at once, and it's good for you to learn some patience. We are back here in this moment, Casamigos swallowed, ass out, convention center, remember, you've just been recognized from your TikTok for the very first time. And what do you do? This lady is looking at you while you are insert stripper name here and startles you speechless. <laughs> you, <laughs> speechless. Anyways, it's all just very funny to me. You cannot think of a lie fast enough. So you just smile and say, yes, <laughs> you are on TikTok. And you know what happens? She's really cool. In fact, she says, it makes you a lot cooler knowing that you do this. Like you are really full, like a full person off screen. And that leaves you wondering what it might be like if everyone on the internet knew, if your family knew, if one day your life was not so bisected and dissected and pinned apart and you didn't have to pretend like you were ashamed of yourself because you're not. Maybe the mess of you belongs on stage just as much as you do. And at this time, the stage is more of on my own terms. Every stage is exploitative except for the one that you build. So not quite, right? We're still using somebody else's stage. Not all the way, but certainly more agency than before at the club or at church or at school. You have a lot more freedom to expand and contract and so many different kinds of people watching you. Hello to everybody watching me. People are watching us. People are taking inspiration and joy from us when you could not give those things to yourself. People like you when you didn't really like yourself. And instead of the constant dying and the constant public spectacle, we have found a way to manage and balance the hardness of things. I have always been one to wear my hardships on my sleeves, quite literally on my wrists, and now I am here having folks assume that I had a rich kid life with healthy attachments to my parents. Befuddling. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> look how fast, look how fast you found yourself, found your footing on the world stage sharing us and moments and morsels of time that you find lovely and then boom, just like that, after years and years and years of not keeping notebooks, there you are, archiving in a way that's gonna reach so much longer, so much wider, taller than you ever could. You are making a mountain out of yourself. I cannot help now at almost 25. I cannot help but love myself even when I do not like myself. And what better love than the love of being kept and collected and held?
We're finishing with an epilogue, a brief letter to me on my 23rd birthday entitled, Forgive Me for Spoiling the Ending. At the time this picture was taken by someone who had become your best friend, you had only just begun to understand how vast you are and how pointless it is to try and underperform. You were raised up by the mountains and cemented in the sun. You, a Leo, underperform. <laughs> you thought you could run and hide when you got scared. Imagine thinking that you'd be raspberries your whole life. Beloved, you're a grown up now. You have made it to adulthood and you're surprised that you're different than you thought you would be. Your flowers changed in bloom. Welcome to your era of sunflowers. I, you, we, are an amalgamation of the people that build us. And if I am honest, good and honest with you, and I always will be, you have always been built, at least in part, by the public eye. I have been so pieced together by and under the center stage spotlight. 14 was such a tender age <laughs> to take the stage. And there are some ways where I will never unsee my body as a site of opportunity. And it is what it is. I can never go backwards. And me hiding wasn't backwards. It was just around again in the same orbit. If you want to keep going, you got to go forward. All it did was delay the inevitable. Because when you speak, it feels like branches are shooting out of your chest. You are most rooted when you feel your voice carry on the sun rays. People from all over the world listen to you on your lives, on your podcast, quite literally in your day-to-day -day musings. It always confirms and solidified what I already knew about you. The reason that we prohibited social media in our lives as teenagers is because we knew what would happen. We knew what would happen if we gave the internet access to us and our speaking. How hilarious it is that you thought you could run. You were always going to be up here. You were built by the sun and you owe those rays you soaked up a second chance at shining. Well, beloved, you survive. You survive your next big heartbreak. I don't like this song. It's a little too, we're trying to end here. I need something sultry. Thank you. <laughs> you survive your next big heartbreak and your freakouts about graduate school and your wild ass landlords. You survive the pilgrimage home and back to yourself night after night, era after era. So much gumption, grit. My stars, you amaze me. I will spoil the ending for you, which is just the middle of my own block. I am still here, making notes in the margins for us. I have new questions of love to consider, and they're as follows. How do I love myself best in public? In the public that I'm here with right now. What is self-love when a part of me always belongs to the people? I haven't reread the notebook that you kept loosely during that time, but I, I cannot wait to see what you planted for me and to see the ways that we will both surprise each other. Love and love at ismatu.gwendolyn, one year in. Okay, final thoughts. Archival is not only a study of self, it is a declaration of love. I love myself and so I want to remember this. I love myself and so I want to remember all of this. I don't want it to flash by in phases of struggling to find pleasure and sobriety, in phases of doing way too much, in phases of being a workaholic and doing so much and not enough all at once. I don't want to remember anything or sorry, I don't want to forget everything because I'm not sleeping or I'm not eating or I'm grinding or I'm escaping. Like I want to slow down and taste my life. I want to remember this. Especially this era of life, this era where I'm, I'm sharing myself in public and where people can see me and I can see them and we see each other. It's not always gonna be like this. I will not always have access to people that watch me in the way that I do right now. It's very temporary. And there is so much beauty, there's so much rarity 
It feels like a rare jewel being in such a space of, of temporality. I want to remember this. I love myself and so I want to remember. And I am enthralled with the smallest bits of this life seeding and sprouting years later. When I have the fertile earth to hold on to them, I surprise myself with what I grow. Even still, after all this time of getting to know myself, I still surprise myself. I expected to look back behind me at where I've walked and see like wild flowers littered everywhere the wind blows. And I am shocked 10 years after the fact to see what 13 turning 14 me planted in their left hand as she wrote to me with her right, blooming up from the margins, stocky, bright, thick-stemmed sunflowers turning their face up to the sky. Shocking. I keep myself, and in doing so, I declare myself worth keeping. I'm gonna run that back. I keep my own self. I keep myself, and in doing so, I declare myself worth keeping. And at this time, instead of doing everything in private just for me, which was worth it, just for me, which taught myself how to have secret places with myself, instead of just doing that, I am opening up my garden heart to the people that see and see me, that have found ways to love me in sincerity, even with the smallest glimpses of my life. I spare a seed when I'm able so that maybe they can plant something too. And I know that I am in a temporary space and I'm flying all the same. I hope that the work of your day passes through your hands with ease. And I hope you have something left over to say to your future self at the end of the day. Warmest regards, Isma to Gwendolyn.